Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor So we started the book of Hebrews last week, and we went through chapter 1. And the entire burden of chapter 1 was to lay forth seven huge pictures of who Jesus was. And so those of you that were here last week, what were some of those things that Jesus, that the the writer wanted us to understand who Jesus was? What were some of those things? He was creator. What else? Big ticket items. He's sovereign. Let's just put it this way. Jesus is the sovereign creator of all things. He rules over all things. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He is above all earthly powers. The whole point of chapter 1 is to show that Jesus is supremely over everything in the universe, even the angels. Okay, So the writer starts with theology first. He starts with doctrine. He starts with teaching about who Jesus is. Now, as we move into chapter 2, he's going to give the first of five warnings. Hebrews, if you remember, is a sermon. And as a good pastor, he is going to warn his congregation. And so we're just going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 this morning. Like this morning. Why am I keep saying this morning? It's been a long day if it's still this morning. Um, Chapter 2 Verses 1 through 4 is the first warning passage that we have in the book of Hebrews. We will come back to these because what the writer does, he's going to intersperse doctrine and then he's going to go to warning. He's going to give us doctrine and then he's going to go to warning. What was the big issue last week that we said what the whole reason this book was written? There were Hebrew or Jewish Christians that were tempted to what? Go back to the Jewish way of doing things and to really walk away from Christianity. That, that was the danger, okay? So let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to unpack this and talk about it and, and, and get pretty, pretty in-depth tonight, okay? So here we go. Therefore, let's just stop. What's the therefore, therefore? <laughs> therefore is, after everything I've just said, Therefore, I'm about to tell you something in summation of what I just said. So here's what he says. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Now, before we even start, how many of you are boating experts? How many of you have been on a sailing vessel? How many? All right, let's just guess. How many of you know the importance of having an anchor? Okay, what happens when you don't have an anchor and you have wind? What, you, what ends up happening? What's the, word, what's the word that you guys are, you guys are moving the hand motions? I'm seeing this. 
You're all set. Drift. Okay, so it's called drift. Okay, so I want you to go back and I want you to read that again. What does he say in the very first verse there? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we what? what it, my translation says drift. Does anybody else have a different word besides drift? Drift. Okay, so here's the main point. Here is the main point of this section, these first four verses. There is a dangerous and subtle temptation to drift away from Jesus, which will eventually bring God's righteous judgment. Now, I chose those words specifically. Number one, it's dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Because it will end up in God's righteous judgment if you drift too far. Number two, it's subtle. And we're going to talk about that. Okay? So here's the main verb of this entire section. Pay attention. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention. It's also in what we would call a present active, which means keep on continually as a lifestyle, ongoingly, pay attention. Keep on paying attention. And then my translation has much Closer. We must pay much closer attention. Does anybody have something different besides much? What does yours say? All the more? We must pay the most careful The most careful attention. There's a little phrase in the Greek language that's used there to really amplify the fact that we must pay attention. So the writer is basically saying, listen, it is imperative, it is important that you pay attention. That you pay attention. So the question is, okay, all right, thanks for telling me that. To what are they to keep on continually paying attention? What does he say there? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Okay. So in the context of the book of Hebrews, in the context of the Bible, what do you think he's talking about there? What had they heard? Well, it's the, the gospel message. He says later on in verse 3, it's this great salvation. So he's saying, listen, you've got to keep on continually paying attention to the gospel. Why? What does he say there in verse 1? If you don't, if you don't keep on continually paying attention to what you've heard, what's the danger? You will drift now let me talk about this word drift it's a very special special word in the original language the greek language it means whoops let's go back this word drift away describes a boat that is gradually slipping away from its moorings it was also used of a ring slipping off a finger the idea is that the drift is slow subtle and undetected by those on board you get the image in your mind of what this is so it's the whole idea that you put your anchor down and maybe the anchor doesn't go all the way down and so maybe you begin to drift now when you're on the boat do you notice it what happens maybe 20 minutes 30 minutes two hours where are you you're maybe a mile down the down the shore but you didn't realize you were moving because what was it? It was slow. It was subtle. You didn't notice it. 
That's the metaphor he's using here of a danger of drifting away from the gospel. And so the question I've got is this. How in the world is this even possible for Christians? Why in the world would we want to drift away from Jesus and the gospel? Let me just ask the question, is there a danger of drifting for all of us? Okay, there is a danger in drifting, is there not? Why do we drift? We're going to talk about this in a minute. You said lack of fellowship. That's good. What were you going to say, Jerry? Sin. Okay, sin. That's always the answer. If there's something bad, it's, it's sin. Okay, yes. You're all right. Here's the first thing we need to ask. Is your anchor fixed deeply in Jesus? That's the first ultimate question. If this whole imagery of drifting away like a boat, like a ship... And the anchor's not deep. Like it's maybe your anchor goes down in the sand and it drags as opposed to going down in bedrock. So the question is, how deep is your anchor in Jesus? Is your anchor deep in Jesus? And so here's the question. And I've, I've put these on your sheet, but I, I think we can talk about it. What are some signs, some telltale signs that you may be experiencing a slow drift away from Jesus? And I've listed 10 of them there, but um, I was kind of hoping we would talk about those. You, you said one, Jenny. Well, let's, let's talk about these 10 and see if you guys think these are signs that you or I or any Christian may be drifting. Number one, and these aren't in any particular order. It, it's just I, I, I thought about these things and just kind of listed them. You're no longer having a daily quiet time in prayer and Bible reading. If you, know, if you find yourself not in the Word daily and not praying daily and not spending time, that's probably a telltale sign that you're slowly drifting away. Would you agree? Okay. Number two, you've stopped coming to church and surrounding yourself by other believers to hold you accountable. How e- you guys tell me, the times that in your life where you may have drifted away from Jesus were, were those times when you had a good support system around you? Or were those times when you isolated yourself from church family? I think when we isolate ourselves from a church family, when we stop coming to church, we're more susceptible to drifting. Uh, number three, you seem to be embarrassed publicly by the gospel. When people talk about Jesus or when you want, need to make a stand publicly or you want to stand up for your faith on the job and, and you're embarrassed... You don't want to talk about it. You don't want to let people know you're a Christian. That may be a sign that you're, that you're drifting when you're publicly embarrassed by the gospel. You find yourself getting caught up in sports and leisure which take your time away from the gospel. Ooh, he opened up a can of worms. <laughs> is, are, is there anything wrong with sports? Is there anything wrong with leisure? What's wrong in our culture today? Okay, I'm here. it's on Sundays. Okay. Have we in America made an idol out of sports? We have our Greek gods and goddesses. They just wear helmets. <laughs> and we have our coliseums and our, and, our, and our, they're just called stadiums. It's not in that sports and leisure in and of themselves aren't bad, but when they take up 
your time away from the gospel, when they become all-consuming, it could be a sign you're drifting. Another sign you're drifting, maybe you're not concerned about the salvation of your lost family and friends. I mean, you you don't really think about your lost, the lost people around you. You're not concerned about evangelism. By the way, there's an evangelism conference this weekend here at the church that all of you are invited to. You should have gotten an email if you're on our email list today. Um, It's this Friday at 6 o'clock. There's child care. There's food. Um, It's going to be a great time of getting trained in doing personal evangelism. Um, So that's what? Food? Yeah. We've got we to bribe you with something. We have food. It's free food. It's going to be good food, right, Janae? It's going to be good food. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You can ask Janae if you... All right, so number six. You've got to sign up. Yeah, we need to know. You're constantly, you constantly find yourself giving into peer pressure. That may be a telltale sign that you are drifting when you give into peer pressure. Do, we, when we think about peer pressure, and I was a youth pastor for many years, when we, th- when we hear the word peer pressure, what do we normally think? Oh, that's a teenager thing. Is that true? No. Do we as adults struggle with peer pressure or fear of others, what others are going to think of us? Okay. Number seven, another sign you may be drifting is you've gotten caught up in materialism and consumerism. What's materialism and consumerism? You become kind of greedy that you're all about how much stuff you can accumulate and very obsessed by that type of stuff. Number eight, you're mad at God for unmet, unmet expectations. He didn't give you your best life now, so you doubt it's worth, it's worth it to follow Him. You thought when you became a Christian, things would be a certain way, and when they didn't go that way, you have begun to blame God, and now you're like, well, it's not even worth following Him if He's not going to give me what He told me He was going to give me. So maybe somebody promised you something on the front end of becoming a Christian that just wasn't part of the package. Does Jesus promise that we're going to have a bed of roses and that there's going to be no problem? So when we have trials and tribulations, that's a normal part of of, of the Christian life. Number nine, you have secret sins that draw your heart away from confession and repentance. There's secret sins that you're harboring. We're going to talk about that this Sunday. Um, Last Sunday, we talked about David and Bathsheba. This Sunday, we're going to talk about Psalm 51, which is David's confession. And we're going to look at what does it really mean to confess and repent of sin. You have secret sins. And then number 10, there's probably more. You're beginning to buy the lie of the culture and reinterpret what the Bible actually says on key issues. If you're a friend of mine on Facebook, I posted something a couple hours ago, this new video that's going around. I'm a Christian but. Have you guys seen that? Go, go, go find it on YouTube. I'm a Christian but. I wish I could find it. You know what? Let's see if we can find it. I have got a computer and we've got internet. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Um, whoa, that's really small, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, I'll just get it right here. I'm a Christian, but um, here it is. All right, so let me make sure my volume's up. Nope. I'm Christian, but I don't have all the answers. 
All right, I want to get your response to that. <laughs> Whoops. I hope he can guess it, but if Whoops. he doesn't, no, I won't we'll close. Him. It might throw a wrench. Sorry. Um, so... How do you respond to that? Let me just say this. A half-truth is not a whole truth, and it leads to a mistruth. Were there some truths in what they said? Were they half-truths? Okay. Is, should we be known as loving? Should we be known as accepting people? Okay. But what about some of the other things they said? You'd think that if somebody's going to stand on a YouTube clip and say, I'm a Christian, what do you think they would say? I believe in Jesus. I believe the Bible. I believe the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I believe that it was all about, basically what it was is we don't want people to think we're wackos, so let's just tell people that we're okay. Yeah. So part of what they said was good, but part of what they said was not good. So how would you, how would you respond to... So the point is, you know you're drifting when what? What was my point? You're buying the lie of culture and reinterpreting what the Bible actually says on key issues. That's my biggest fear for the younger generation, is that they will still identify as Christian but they will reinterpret what it means to be a Christian. Did that video just reinterpret what it means to be a Christian? Okay. They're using, I'm a Christian. They're not ashamed to say I'm a Christian, but they're reinterpreting what it means biblically. Okay. And I think that's a telltale sign that you're drifting when you begin to buy the lie of culture. Okay. Now, why is it so dangerous to drift? Why is it dangerous? And the writer's going to tell us here why it's dangerous. Let's look at verse 2. He's going to argue from the lesser to the greater. 
He's going to make it, and the writer of Hebrews does this throughout the book. He's going to basically say something like, from lesser to greater, he's going to, basically the concept is like this. If it was like this for the Old Testament people, how much more important is it for us as the New Testament people? That's kind of what he's going to argue. And so here's what he says in verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. What in the world is he talking about? He's talking about a message delivered by angels. Here's what he's talking about. In the Old Testament, God delivered the law on Mount Sinai through Moses by the power of angels to be binding upon Israel as a reliable source of God's standards. So let's just talk about the message, the law. So the law of God that was delivered at Mount Sinai, what do we know about that law? It was binding, it was God's word, it was God's standard. Now, the writer here says that it came, it was declared by angels. Now you may say, well, I thought, I thought Moses delivered the law when he came down Mount Sinai. Yes, but if you go back, there's a few verses that say that angels were involved in that, and that's why the writer says that. So like Deuteronomy 33.2, he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. It's this whole idea that when Moses was on top of Mount Sinai receiving the law, God was there giving it to him, surrounding by these flaming angels. And so the, the whole argument is that the law that Moses brought down from the mountain, angels were part of that. And then Stephen, when he's given his speech right before he gets stoned in Acts 7.38, he says, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles given to us. So, so Stephen says that Moses received the law through, through a, an angel. But notice what happens. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Okay, so what he's saying there is the law of God given at Mount Sinai through the angels was reliable. It's trustworthy. What happened if you broke it? What's he say there? Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. What two words does he use there in regards to the law? Transgression and disobedience. Okay, those words used there, transgression and disobedience, they do not convey the idea of accidental sins of ignorance, but instead they mean deliberate sinning against what the Israelites knew was God's law. So, is there a difference between unintentional sins and deliberate sins? I hope you say yes. What was the penalty, and maybe you've never heard this term before, what was the penalty for high-handed sins in the Old Testament? And when I say high-handed, a high-handed is a deliberate, intentional sin. What was the penalty for a high-handed sin in the Old Testament? Death. What was the penalty for an unintentional sin? Usually it was restitution. So, for example, let me give you an example. If you're driving your ox cart and you turn the corner real fast in the village and you take out another person and you actually commit manslaughter but you didn't mean to, you did not get the death penalty. 
you just had to either go to a city of refuge because the, other, the family might seek you out and kill you, or you had to make restitution okay, if it was an accidental death. On the flip side, if it was premeditated murder where you went out premeditatedly and planned to murder somebody, you got the death penalty. See the difference between premeditated? And so when you go back to the Old Testament, there were high-handed sins. So let's go back to, to Numbers. And the writer of Hebrews is basically saying, listen, here was the deal in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they received the law. And when they deliberately and persistently disobeyed the law, there was, what does he say there? A just retribution. What was the just retribution that they received back in the Old Testament? Death. So let's go to, to keep your finger in Hebrews and let's go, go back in the Old Testament to Numbers and let's see this concept of intentional and unintentional sins and see how the penalty was different. Because the writer of Hebrews is talking not about unintentional, he's talking about, he's saying, listen, there is a type of sinning that is deliberate, it is persistent, it is defiant, and it is premeditated. That's those words he's talking about when he talks about transgression and obedience. There was a sin. If you blatantly, flagrantly, defiantly, I'm trying to think of different words, defiantly, persistently, intentionally, good, give me another one, intentionally, how about premeditatively? If you did, I don't even know how to spell that. You know what I mean, premeditatively. If you, I don't even know what that says, premeditate something. If you, if you commit sins in this type of attitude against God's law in the Old Testament, okay, in the Old Testament, the law that was binding, the law that was reliable, the law that was delivered through angels, your just retribution was death. You got the death penalty. So let's go to Numbers and, and look at Numbers 15, verse 27. You guys ready? Numbers 15, 27. If one person sins unintentionally, unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally. So make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the peoples of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. What does that mean? It doesn't mean he's exiled. It means he, he dies. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off, his iniquity shall be on him. So if you commit high-handed sins, you don't even get atonement. You die. If you commit sins unintentionally, there is atonement for you. Now, he's going to give an illustration. Let's look at the illustration. Let's look at verse 32. And you may think, what in the world is this story about? This seems unfair. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness... They found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. 
And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. What was he doing? Picking up sticks on Sabbath. Now you may think, that's not a big deal, is it? Was that intentional or unintentional? Was it like he was out there going, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing here. I'm just kind of wandering around looking for sticks. <laughs> what he was doing, guys, was he's trying to get a head start probably on his business venture. He was, trying, he was thinking to himself, if I can go out and get sticks while everybody else is resting on the Sabbath, I can get these things and get a head start and, and get firewood for my family. And the law was very clear. You don't work on the Sabbath. So was that an intentional or unintentional sin? It was an intentional, high-handed sin. And what was his penalty? Death. Okay, it was a death penalty. So here's the issue. Let's go back to Hebrews. Because he's, he's making this argument from lesser to greater. Okay, from lesser to greater. And he says, okay, here's how it was in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when you sinned, against God's law, intentionally, you received a just retribution. That was death. Okay, now notice what he says in verse 3. How shall we, shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If it was a huge deal for the Israelites and the punishment was death, He's saying, here's the greater issue. How much more of a big deal is it for us to defiantly drift away from salvation? Implication, you too will see, receive just retribution. What's the word he uses there? How shall we escape? Escape what? Why use the imagery of escaping? It assumes that, here's what it assumes, if one drifts too far, it will demonstrate that they were never saved in the first place and they will suffer the just retribution of hell, of hell as an unbeliever. Do you see how it's so dangerous here? What's he saying? There is a danger of you drifting so far that, you, that you've drifted into hell. Now, we can stop and ask a theological question. Can a true believer do that? And I would say the Bible says no. A true believer can't do that. But are there a lot of fake believers that think they're believers that can do that? Why do you think he uses the word escape? If you trace the word escape, that Greek word escape, throughout the rest of the New Testament... It almost always conveys the idea of escaping God's wrath, escaping God's justice, escaping the day of judgment. Let me just give you a couple examples. Jesus tells um, the disciples in Luke 21, verses 34 through 36, He says, Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day, what day is He talking about? The day of the Lord. That day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to what? Escape all of these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. 
In this context, what does escape mean? You escape the second coming of the Lord in the day of judgment. Romans chapter 2, 3 and 4. Paul says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's a very important verse. Why is God, when you're perpetually in sin and you're sinning intentionally and you're rebelling against God and God doesn't do something to intervene, why is He doing that? Is He doing that so you can continue to sin? Or is He doing that as a way to say, whoa, I better, I better come back to Him. That's to lead me to repentance. That's what that verse is saying. How shall we escape? Escape what? Just retribution. If we neglect, if we neglect such a great salvation. Yours may use the word ignore or disregard or have no care for. Again, it's subtle. Let me just say this. Nobody wakes up one day and says, today's going to be the day I become an atheist. Today's going to be the day I reject Jesus. Nobody wakes up and says, today I'm going to do this. What happens? slowly over time the allurements of the world take over and you drift away from Jesus and the gospel, this great salvation. Think about the people in your life that you may know who have drifted. Was it a sudden thing or was it a gradual thing? Probably 99% of cases it's a gradual thing. It happens over time. It happens subtly. And they may wake up one day and be like, I can't believe I'm where I'm at. Just five years ago, I was walking with the Lord, and, and look where I am now. I'm waking up in a bed with somebody that's not my spouse. Or I've done this crazy thing that I thought I would never do. And it wasn't like he woke up that or she woke up that day thinking they were going to do that. It was a subtle drift over time. That's why it's a warning here. And what does the writer say? Man, how can you do this? It's such a what? What does he say? It's a great salvation. Why in the world... Would you want to drift away from such a great salvation? And the answer is, you wouldn't want to. If you knew how great your salvation was, you would not want to drift away from it. And so the rest of the book of Hebrews, he's going to unpack what this great salvation is. But what I want us to do real quick is go to Ephesians chapter 1. And I want us just to look at some things that characterize our great salvation. If somebody were to say to you, what, what's so great about your salvation? Well, I think Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, unpack for us the greatness of our salvation. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. And by the way, in the original language, verse 3 to verse 14 is one huge sentence in the original language. It's the longest sentence in the New Testament. It's kind of like Paul just kept writing and Kept getting inspired by the Holy Spirit and couldn't, couldn't take a breath because he was so overcome with this great salvation. Here's what he says, starting in verse 3, Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So every spiritual blessing you could think of, we've been blessed in Christ. And he's going to list these spiritual blessings of our salvation. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. 
In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He's blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. That's the song we sing. So what are, I think I listed here from this passage of Scripture, eight... Eight blessings of our great salvation. What are these gospel blessings in Christ? Number one, election. We've been predestined before the foundation of the world. Before the world was created, God set His electing love upon us. Number two, God adopted us into His family. Number three, the promise of being made holy and blameless one day at the coming of Christ. Number four, redemption out of spiritual slavery through Christ's blood. Number five, total forgiveness of all of our sins. Number six, being lavished with the riches of God's grace. Number seven, we've obtained an internal inheritance. And number eight, we've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit to live inside of us, guaranteeing our salvation. That is a great salvation. So why in the world would you want to drift away from that? Because ultimately, it's a drift away from Jesus. Now, here's where it's dangerous. Let's go back to Hebrews. I'm going to open up a little bit of can of worms that you may or may not agree with my, my conclusions here, and that's okay. I, I, I believe a certain thing, but you don't necessarily have to believe this. I don't think you have to be, we, we, don't, we don't have to be dogmatic on this, but, but I, I've kind of landed on this. If Jesus, or if the writer of Hebrews is making this argument from lesser to greater, basically saying, listen, here's the issue. If the whole issue in the Old Testament was, if they they perpetually rebelled against the law, they got death. How much more is it if you perpetually reject Jesus, you will receive hell? Now, here's the argument. If God spoke His powerful law through angels from Mount Sinai, and it was just retribution to rebel against Him, then how much more is it to rebel against Jesus, who is greater than the angels and greater than God's law? The only righteous retribution to reject Jesus is hell. Now, we would all agree with that, right? If you reject Jesus, you don't get the death penalty. You get hell. But... Here's the question. Are there degrees of whoops, punishment in hell? That's where you may disagree with me. I believe there are degrees of punishment in hell. The greater vision of Jesus and knowledge you have of Him, and then you reject Him, the greater the hotness of hell it will be for you. It would be better to have never heard of Jesus than to hear the gospel and reject Him. 
Now, those that never have heard will be in hell. But here's the danger I think the New Testament teaches. The more light and knowledge of Christ you receive and you reject it, the greater accountability and degree of punishment in hell. Now, you may say, well, Pastor Sean, where do you get that? Is that just your idea? Is that just your philosophy? Is that just your opinion? I've got a couple of verses, but let me just share with you one verse where Jesus seems to teach this. Again, I don't want to be dogmatic on it, but I do believe that you can make a case for what Jesus says here because it's pretty emphatic. Matthew 11, 20-24, He's pronouncing a woe or a curse upon these cities. Now, you have to remember something. Jesus was in the flesh, walking around these cities, performing miracles, teaching, preaching, casting out demons, doing all these things, and these cities rejected Him. That's like that's that that's a that's a big deal, is it not? To have Jesus in the flesh before you doing miracles and you reject him. Okay? Here's what Jesus says in Matthew eleven, twenty through twenty-four. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin, that's one of the cities. Woe to you, Bethsaida, that's the other city. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than you. And you, Capernaum, it's another town, you will be, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, we all know what happened in Sodom, right? Fire rained down because of their sexual immorality. What's Jesus saying? As great as the sin of homosexuality was and as great as the fire that rained down from heaven on Sodom is, the greater sin is that you saw me, you didn't repent, and you rejected me on the day of judgment. It's going to be Sodom's going to have it better than you. Now, they're still going to be in judgment but it's going to be more bearable for them than for you. So it seems to me there's some degree there. I don't know exactly how it all works out. But what he's saying here is it's a warning. Now, the warning is pay attention. Don't drift. If you drift long enough, over time enough, and you don't repent, what happens? Do you lose your salvation? Okay. We've got to be real careful here. What is the flip side of eternal security? Perseverance of the saints. Would we affirm that God... When God, would we affirm this? When God saves His children, He keeps His children. Would we all affirm that? Would we affirm that nothing can separate us from the hand of Christ? Nothing can se- so a true Christian cannot lose his or her salvation. Okay. But we also, on the same token, affirm this statement. If you don't endure to the end, you won't be saved. If you do not persevere to the end, you won't be saved. But we also affirm that statement. 
And if you say no, then you're not listening to Jesus because Jesus said it on multiple occasions. He who endures to the end will be saved. The whole book of Revelation. So here's the question. Don't be afraid. Don't, see, do you guys know what an um, antinomy is? It's an apparent contradiction of two things that are opposite, but they're not. Does God promise to keep us to the end? Yes. Must we persevere to the end? Would we agree with both those statements? Okay. Both of these statements are true. God promises to keep us to the end. We must persevere to the end or we won't be saved. The question is not, do both of these things exist? Yes. The question then, okay, how does it happen? Exactly. Here's the point. If God chose you before the foundation of the world, if God saved you, if God holds you, what's he going to do? God's going to make sure by his grace that you do persevere to the end. He's, and that may be painful. Because what happens if you begin to drift? What may he do? He may discipline. He may get your attention. He may intervene. He may ordain things to happen in your life by his grace to make sure that you do persevere to the end. And aren't you thankful he does that? Because what if he didn't? Would you persevere to the end? Yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. And that's his whole point is to grow you. So we need to remember two things here, guys, because you can go way overboard on. Here, here's the danger, okay? For those of us who believe in eternal security, the danger of believing that is once saved, always saved. I've got my free ticket to heaven. God keeps me saved. Therefore, I can go live however I want. Half truth, right? What's the, first, what's the truth? Does God hold us and keep us and, and, and preserve us? Yes. Does God forgive us? Non-truth. Can we live however we want? Okay. So there, there's a danger out there to say, yeah, I'm eternally secure. I'm secure in my salvation. God has saved me. I love sinning. God loves forgiving. It's a great relationship. I'm going to live the rest of my life like that. If you live the rest of your life like that, what are you doing? You are drifting. And if you drift too far and you don't persevere to the end and you drift away, eventually, if you never come back, you will receive hell. Now, if you're a true child of God, I think he brings you back. If you're a true child of God, is he going to let you drift? He may yank you back. (laughs) He may bring you back gently at times or he may bring something into your life, but he's not going to let you. He's going to, pull the, he's going to keep pulling the anchor back no matter how hard you try against him. He's going to pull it back. If you're not a true child of God and you're pretending and you just keep drifting and drifting, what's going to happen? God never had you in the first place. So this is a warning here to make sure that your anchor is secure. Now, we have to ask the question, how did this great salvation come to the original audience? What does, Jesus, what does the writer say here? In the second half of verse 3, it, what's it? 
this message of great salvation, it was declared first by who? The Lord. Jesus proclaimed it. Remember when Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom? He preached the message of salvation. And who else proclaimed it? It was attested to us by those who heard. Who would that be? The apostles. And and God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So here's the issue. This is a second generation group of Hebrews who, who were probably trained, taught, shared the gospel to probably by a group of the, some of the original disciples. Okay? They weren't eyewitnesses to Jesus. They did not see Jesus' resurrection. But those who were there at Jesus' resurrection, those who were there that were in the book of Acts doing things by signs and wonders and miracles and the power of the Holy Spirit and, and all those things at Pentecost, they came to the people that the writer is writing to and they shared with them the message. Now, obviously, how did the message come to us? Did the message come to us by apostles? Through the word, yes, but did, did Peter come and share with you the gospel? How did it come? I think it came to us the way it came to the Thessalonian church. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, we know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So how did the word come to you? Somebody preached it, shared it, told it to you. And then how did it come? Were you convicted of your sin when it came to you? Was the Holy Spirit present? Yes, those things were there. Now, here's the big question. Here's the big question. If the warning is so dire to not drift, I mean, you, you, he's, it jumps off the page. You've got to keep on continually paying attention very, very closely that you don't drift. Because if you drift, if you neglect the salvation, you will receive the just retribution just like the Old Testament people did when they rebelled against God. So don't drift. Do not drift. So the question then becomes, what's our motivation not to drift? And here's the answer, and we'll unpack that for the rest of tonight. We need to daily fix our eyes on Jesus, preach the gospel to ourselves, saturate ourselves in the scriptures, and prayer so that Jesus is more mesmerizing than the world. And let's just stop and look at that sentence. That's, a power, that's, a, that's an important sentence in my life should be an important sentence in your life. Let's just talk about some of these things. We need to daily, daily do what? Fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, he's going to address this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. That's where, that's where I get that terminology. Hebrews 12, 2, he says, fix your eyes on Jesus. What in the world does it mean to fix your eyes on Jesus? Okay, we're not there yet. But you're good. No, you're, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right, Jenny. What does it mean to preach the gospel to yourself? That's easier for you, Pastor Sean. You go into the sanctuary and you stand behind the pulpit and you get a mirror and you start, you start preaching to yourself. How do you preach the gospel to yourself? Okay. You remind yourselves. Yeah, when I use the word preach the gospel, what I'm really doing is it's, it's, 
Your daily remind, that's a good word. Your daily reminding yourself, your daily, um, let's use these words. Your daily reminding yourself of your need, your daily looking to Christ in the gospel, um, you're fixing your heart and your mind and your eyes on him. You're saturating yourselves in the scriptures. You're praying so that, what's the word mesmerizing? That Jesus is more mesmerized. What's mesmerizing mean? Glamorous. Glamorous. What would you say? A draw, yeah. If you're mesmerized by someone, what does that mean? <laughs> like you've seen some kids when they're watching something for the very first time, you know. I remember when Aiden first saw Star Wars. It was like... <laughs> couldn't get that kid away he was mesmerized and so that's what you want to have with jesus you really want to be mesmerized by jesus in a good way you want to be so captivated so enthralled so allured to jesus that everything else in the world pales and that happens by daily reminding yourself of your need daily looking to jesus daily preaching the gospel to yourself and doing all these things now many of you have probably read the odyssey you guys know the, the main character of the Odyssey, Odysseus? Okay, so he sets sail to Troy to help bring back um, dignity to Greece because Paris has kidnapped Helen, the wife of Troy, and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, if you, if you read the story, on his way back, there's these sirens. You guys know what the sirens are, the siren song? It's an island of beautiful, beautiful women that sing these beautiful songs. And so Odysseus says, okay, here's what we've got to do, guys. You have got to put wax in your ears and tie yourself, tie me to the mast and put wax in my All of you put wax in your ears because they're going to allure you by the siren song. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to hear this beautiful music from these beautiful women, these mermaid-looking women, and you're going to want to go to shore Oh, I'm so mesmerized by these sirens. And when you go to shore and they're so beautiful and they're begging you to come and you get to shore, what happens? You guys know the story? They turn into flesh-eating monsters and they eat them, okay? <laughs> so the point is there's these sirens that look alluring. And what's the, what's the answer? to? So what's Odysseus' answer? Here's how you fight the sirens. You plug your ears, put wax in your ears, la, 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 so you don't hear it. Okay, so that's one way to deal with sin. You just plug your ears and say, I don't, I don't want to deal with sin. I'm not going to talk to sin. I'm not going to deal with it. So plug my ears. Okay, that's one way to deal with sin. It's kind of legalistic. There's another character in Greek mythology named Jason. Jason and the Argonauts. Do you know how he dealt with the sirens? He did not tell his crew to put wax in their ears. He did not tell crew, you know, don't, don't tie yourself to the mast. Here's what he said. We're going to bring our own singer on board. And our singer is going to be named Orpheus. And Orpheus is going to play such beautiful music, such glorious music, that we're going to be so captivated by Orpheus on the ship that when the sirens come towards us, we're not even going to pay attention because Orpheus' music is greater. See the difference between the two? How, how do you deal with them? What's the one constant? The sirens are coming at you. What's one way to deal with it? Just say no. The other, the other way to deal with it is, let me look at something so far greater that when those temptations come, I'm not even willing to turn and look at them. I don't have to put wax in my ears because I'm mesmerized by 
something greater. Now, what's the illustration when it comes to Jesus? We need to see Jesus as greater than anything this world has to offer. Now, there's a, there's a famous sermon by a Scottish pastor named Thomas Chalmers. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And basically what he says is the human heart is never just neutral. Would you guys agree with that? The human heart is always wanting to latch on to something. Is your heart a vacuum? He says your heart is always going to latch on to something. Your heart's always going to be captivated by something. And so it's either going to be captivated by sin or it's either going to be captivated by Christ. And so what needs to happen is the way you fight sin is not to give in to more sin or just replace sin or just say no to sin. You've got to actually replace that sin with something greater in Jesus and find him to be glorious. I've given you this quote by C.S. Lewis probably a lot of times, but here's what he said in his Weight of Glory famous sermon. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. What does C.S. Lewis mean by that? What's the visual image he's, he's using? Do you see the image? Okay, so you're sitting here in a mud puddle. And what are you doing? You're playing, you're making mud puddles, mud, mud pies in the slums. Okay? And you're happy with that. I am so happy with living in the slums and making mud pies. This is the life. And what's he saying? Two blocks away is this beautiful ocean, and you can go make sandcastles and have this beautiful blue ocean, pristine beach. But what would you rather do? You would rather sit there in the mud puddle and make the mud pies because you can't even conceive that there's a sea out there. He says, we're far too easily amused. So what the analogy is, is that in the, in the Christian life, what would be some mud puddles? He's basically saying, we are content to basically fool around with all this stuff of the world and think it's going to bring us satisfaction. When really Jesus is the ocean and we need to go to him and find that joy. Now, one of the words that I think we need to get into our vocabulary, this may not be on your sheet. We need to treasure Jesus. What do I mean by treasuring Jesus? To treasure, what does it mean to treasure something? Value. So what would be another synonym for treasure? You would say value... What would be another word besides treasure? What? Cherish? Good. Maybe esteem. What are some other, any other words that would capture that idea? Okay. So if you're to value, cherish, and esteem, and treasure Jesus, that's the way you don't drift. Okay, so how do you do that? How do you treasure? How do you value? How do you esteem Jesus? Well, you look to him. Um, let me give you a quote by a guy named Sam Storms. I like Sam Storms. He's got some good books, and I listen to his podcast and sometimes go to his blog. He's got some good, he's written some good books. But here's what he said in one of his books. I think this is, um, what book is this from? The Pleasures Evermore, I think, is what this book. He says this. It grieves me to say this, 
But the primary reason people are in bondage to sin is because people are bored with God. That sinful habit you struggle with daily, that low-grade addiction that keeps you in the throes of guilt and shame, that inability to walk with inconsistency or to walk with consistency in the things you know please God, ultimately will be overcome when your heart, soul, mind, spirit, and will are captivated by the majesty, mercy, splendor, beauty, and magnificence of who God is and what He has and will do for you in Jesus. Do you agree with this statement? The reason that most people struggle with God is because they find... I mean, the reason most people struggle with sin is because they find God boring. Has anybody ever articulated that to you? Think about that for a moment. If God were not boring, okay, what happens when you're bored? What do you do? Eat, okay. (laughs) How many times have your kids say, I'm bored? Well, get over it. We live in Sterling. There's not a lot to do, okay? They've been, all right, I've been playing on PlayStation. I've gone to the park. I've played basketball. I've done all these things all day. I'm bored. Okay, so what, when we're bored, what do we want to do? We want to go get entertained to overcome our boredom. So we go to all these different things to find entertainment, to overcome boredom. And so what he's saying is, is that most people don't go to the true source of joy to receive ultimate pleasure, and that's Jesus, because we flat out find Him boring. Have you ever thought about that before? Do you agree or disagree? Maybe you've never articulated that or never had anybody say that to you, but the question is, you struggle with sin, he would say, because you find Jesus boring. What you and I need to do is to have a greater vision of who God is so that He doesn't become boring. God is, not, is God boring? Have you begun to plumb the depths of all who God is? To find Him not boring. Okay? Here is Jonathan Edwards in one of his sermons. I'm giving you some quotes tonight from famous dead guys. Well, Sam Storms is still alive. Um, Jonathan Edwards. C.S. Lewis is dead. Have your eyes, this is, this is Jonathan Edwards, have your eyes ever been open to see the glorious excellency of Jesus Christ? Has the light of the word of God ever shined into your hearts so that to see the excellency of that word that teaches Christ and the way of salvation by him, has the word of Christ been sweeter to you than the honey on the honeycomb? Is the word of Christ of sweet food to your soul that puts new life into you and is better than silver or gold. Do you see your need you have of Christ? So question, the greatest food you could ever eat is Jesus better. All the money in the world is Jesus better. We would hopefully say yes, but do we live like that? Do we live like that? So what's our desire? Our desire is to see the excellencies of Christ so that we don't drift. And what I want us to do is I want us to explore some metaphors, especially in the Old Testament, that especially the Psalms use of this treasuring of Jesus so that we don't drift. And the first one has to do with taste. First of all, the Bible often uses the sense of taste to show our desperate desire for 
Jesus. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. That's an interesting metaphor. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I've given this illustration before. Every summer when we take the third, fourth, and fifth graders to the mini mountain adventure, we stop at Cold Stone on the way back. And you got like 50, not 50, but 20 kids in Cold Stone, and we tell the person at the counter, okay, I'm paying for this. They get one scoop and one topping in, in, in this certain size. And some of these kids have never been to Cold Stone. Their eyes are big, like, and they're like, whoa, they're trying all these different flavors. And so what does Cold Stone offer you? They give you a little spoon so you can sample it before you eat it, right? Okay, so, you know, the kids love that. They're like, ooh, I'm going to calm down. Don't try every flavor. Just pick one. So what's the difference between taking a little sampling spoon on the tip of your tongue versus taking that big, huge ice cream and chugging it down? Is there a taste? Taste and see that the Lord is good. So when we talk about tasting Jesus, it's a weird metaphor. What does that really mean? You take him all in. He's sweet to you. There's a lot of things you can taste in this world. Peter tells it like this. He quotes Psalm 34, 8 in 1 Peter 2, 2-4. Like newborn infants long or crave for pure spiritual milk, that by it, that milk, you may grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Okay, so taste and see that the Lord is good. So here's a weird question for you. Don't take it the wrong way. When was the last time you tasted Jesus to see that he was good? All right. There's another aspect of this. Not only does it talk about taste, but the Bible also uses the idea of being thirsty to show our desperate need to treasure Christ in this gospel repentance so that we don't drift. Psalm 42, 1 through 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? What in the world does it mean for your soul to thirst? What does it mean to be thirsty? We don't understand thirst in this culture. In that culture, they did. What type of culture was that? It was arid, it was deserty, and they didn't have bottled water. You had to go find wells. And if your well dried up, you know, you, you could go, you know, maybe a couple of, maybe not days, you'd die without water. And so water was a, cho- it was a really precious commodity. And so the issue is, does your soul thirst? Does your soul pant? Does the deer pant? What's a pant? Have you seen a dog panting? I've never seen a deer pant, but I'm assuming a deer pants for water because David says, as the deer pants for water. So, but think about this. This is weird. These are terminology. When I read these Psalms, I don't quite understand the terminology, the metaphor, because these are things that I don't think we as a normal Christian think about. Are you panting for Jesus? I don't mean, are you walking around your house going, (laughs) and I'm not talking about that, but I'm saying, 
metaphorically, are, are you thirsting? Are you panting for more of Jesus? It sounds weird to our sensibilities, but this is, this is psalm language. Psalm 63, verses 1 through 5. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips." My soul thirsts as a deer pants for the water. My soul thirsts for God. Then you have Isaiah 55, the proverbial ancient Culligan man that would go from town to town as a water salesman. Literally, the water salesman would go to town. They'd get in the middle of the town. They'd say, come buy water from me. If you want water, come buy water. And so God comes to Israel as a water salesman and says, listen, I'm going to give you free water. You don't need to buy it. Just come. Come and recognize your thirst and come. Listen to what he says, Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Well, how do you buy and eat without money? Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast love, sure love for David. This whole idea of come you who thirst. What did Jesus say about himself in John 7? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You remember that dumb song we used to sing when we were kids? Maybe you like it. I'm probably calling it dumb. And you probably, it's like my favorite song. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. Opens prison's door, sets a captive free. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Spring up a well, gush, 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 gush within my soul. Spring up a well, splash, splash, and make me whole. Spring up a well, yeehaw, give to me that life abundantly. Some of you are like, I have no idea what he's singing. We used to sing there's motions. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. I mean, that's exciting. You will have, you will have rivers of living water flowing out of you. Okay, so you've got this whole... I need to taste Jesus. He satisfies my taste. I need to thirst for Jesus. And then you have this this third imagery here of longing or yearning or even fainting for Jesus. Psalm 77.3 When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, My spirit faints. When I remember God, I moan. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, the word moan really means to to, should be growl. To growl or roar. To growl or roar. It's like a lion when he's hungry. It's basically saying, I'm hungry for Jesus. Have you ever moaned or fainted in desperation? Psalm 84, 2. My soul, whoops. 
My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. So let me close with another quote from Sam Storms in his book, uh, Pleasures Evermore, The Life-Changing Power of Enjoying God. He gives some great phrases in relation to how we can treasure Christ, and he just kept going. So here's these words. Are you enamored, enthralled, entranced, excited, astounded, absorbed, stunned, consumed, thrilled, preoccupied, overwhelmed, enthused, mesmerized, monopolized, captivated, fascinated, exhilarated with Jesus? Pretty much covers it, doesn't it? And the question is, if you're not, what's the danger that the writer of Hebrews says? If you're not, you will drift. And if you drift too far, you're neglecting such a great salvation. So don't drift. Pay close attention. Now, I milked a lot out of four verses because I didn't want to give much more information because this is a long chapter. Are there any questions or observations or things you guys think we need to talk about in the last little 15 minutes or so? Yes, Lori. The best way to pray for someone who's drifted. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's in second. Yeah, that God may grant them repentance and they may come to their senses and be out of the clutch of the evil one. That's Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with praying that. Um, I think that that's a complex question because I think it depends on to what degree the person has drifted. Like, I think there's degrees of drift. So, for example, if it's a rebellious, obstinate, like, hateful drift where they've totally rejected God and have like and they're angry and stubborn about it your prayer may be different than if they're kind of slowly drifting and they're kind of clueless but they're they're not hardened in that yet because if they've gotten really far I would pray more dramatically like Lord get their attention in a big way even if it's painful for them um, whereas if it's like a, a lesser drift you may just be like Lord you know get their attention um, bring conviction of the Holy Spirit, bring someone into their life to, 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 to speak truth to them, um, grant them repentance, pray that the evil one would not have a foothold in their life, um, pray that I would have words to say. Um, Lord, if, you're gonna, if it's going to happen, Lord, you have to miraculously do it and use whatever means possible that would bring you glory to do that. I think that's a safe way of, of praying it. But I don't think what you said is any, there's anything wrong with praying that way. Let's look. Well, I think that there. Here's the thing, Lori. You you can't look at the heart of a person to say whether they're a believer or an unbeliever. But the fact that they're drifting in your concern probably means that you need to probably treat them like an unbeliever. And so when you pray for their return or repentance, you don't know, but you may have a suspicion that maybe they're not. 
Um, let's find that passage so that we can ref- reference what you're talking about. I think it's in 2 Timothy. Is it 3? I know it's in 2 Timothy somewhere. Um, oh, yeah, no, it's in 2 Timothy 2, 24. Yeah, 2 Timothy 2, 24. Really, you guys have to understand a little bit about Timothy. First and 2 Timothy and Titus are the only New Testament books written to pastors. These are called the pastoral epistles because they're written to pastors, which Paul is giving instructions to pastors on how to pastor. And so there's a lot of stuff that's applicable to me and how I'm supposed to do my ministry, but there's also general principles of how we're to operate as Christians. Okay, So he's talking to Timothy here about how to deal with um, people in your church. How do you do ministry? So he says in, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, the Lord's servant, that's a pastor, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So, Lori, how I would pray, how I would pray that was this. Number one, Lord, grant them repentance. Number two, Lord, Lead them to a knowledge of the truth. Lord, let them come to their senses. And Lord, please let them escape the snare of the devil. I would just pray those four things that he lists right there. And I think those can be for a non-Christian or a professing Christian who's drifting and is living in sin. I think it's appropriate to pray that. That would be a good prayer. It's a scriptural prayer because you're praying scripture for them. Good question. Anybody else? Question. Stay on them. I remember Oprah Colbert never let go of me. She would call me. She would see me out and stop and say, I'm praying for you. I won't be back where you belong. Please get back in church where you need to be. And she never let go. Yeah. Yeah. I would say you need to communicate to people that you're concerned about that you love them, that you're concerned for them and that you're holding out hope that God will bring them back. I don't think you ever want to write off somebody. Um, Jesus talks about, you know, don't cast your pearls before swine. Um, and I think there takes some wisdom where you, you walk away from a relationship, but I would, I would be, that'd be my last-ditch effort. I would always leave the door open for repentance and for rest, you know, reconciliation. So, um, how do you, like, for example, how do you deal with a person who really, really at one point was so excited about Jesus, they looked at all, like, from all outward appearance, it looked like that they had salvation, they came to church, they got baptized, they professed faith in Christ, but then... Like right now, there's no evidence. Anybody? Know, I mean, I can list names. Does anybody know anybody like that? That they they've seen like that? Okay. Question then becomes: If you look at the parable of the sower, parable of the soils, there's four types of soil, right? What was the second soil? You guys remember the second soil? Let's go there. You guys ready to go there? Mark. I'll just go to Mark's gospel because it's shorter. 
Jesus tells us that we're going to experience this. As heartbreaking as it is, Jesus basically gave a parable. Um, Here's what he says, starting in, um, well, Mark chapter 4. It's the rocky ground. It's the rocky ground, the rocky ground soil, the second soil. Let's look at Mark 4, 16. So there's four soils, but let's look, just look at the second soil for the sake of time because I think this is the one that really confuses us or, or kind of bothers us. Mark four sixteen. Okay. These are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So there are some people that will joyfully accept Christ and show all outward evidence of being excited about it. And they're going to, they're going to show, they're going to endure for a while, but then what's going to happen? Tribulation and persecution are going to come and they will fall away. They will drift away. What does he say? Why? There is no root. What did the writer of Hebrews say? Why do you drift? There is no anchor. Okay, So you can fake it. You can make an outward profession of faith saying that you believe in Jesus outwardly and even go through some religious motions like baptism and other things. But if you have no root and you have no anchor in Jesus through faith, it's only going to last a short while. And then you're going to drift because you never have the root that's going to spring up fruit or you never have the anchor that's going to hold. So what do we need to make sure? You have the anchor. And so Jesus says in that parable, there are going to be people that appear and um, there will be drifts. And that's why it's, it's heartbreaking. But there's always hope. And the, the hope is not in your ability to persuade them to come back. The hope is in God's grace to do it in your prayers that God uses. All right, any other questions? This was a warning, and it was meant to have an effect. The writer of Hebrews, what's the purpose of a warning? Are you going to walk away from it and be like, well, that was cool. What's the purpose of a warning? <laughs> hmm, I better evaluate myself. I better think about, I mean, you're going to walk away from this sober, sobered by like, hmm, that was a warning. I need to really pay attention. That was the purpose of it. So...